Okay, testing. Hello. How are we going? All right, great. Yeah. Thanks, team. And I really appreciate that song, coming back to the heart of worship. I, as I was thinking about, um, we really affirmed last week at the end of the message and time, I thought it was really great to have those four videos. And I'm sure you had a, a bunch of videos before that with the, uh, with the movie series. But I thought, oh, the congregation probably, I feel like I just need an unplugged experience, you know? Well, you know that time where you just have too much? And I think that song sums it up. Coming back to the heart of, the worship, of worship is uh, a connection with the person of Jesus and who he is to us. Not that media is gr- not great, but I thought, I'm just going to go unplugged. So there's no overheads, no music, no videos for our message this morning. It's just you listening to me. I don't know if that's good or bad, (laughs) Uh, but it is a danger with media, and I have learned this from years of experience in education, that if what's up there is not exactly the same conversation that you're having here, you end up having two conversations, one with the screen and one with what this person's talking about. Do you find that? You do. So you won't have that problem today. (laughs) Okay. So I'm just going to start by sharing a story. It's in your bulletin. You don't have to turn. But uh, in 1953, uh, this uh, momentous day happened in our world, and there are days that we really remember in our lives. I'm sure you've had days where you remember what you were doing when you heard an announcement. Who remembers what they were doing in 2000, um, in September 11, 2000, uh, when the trade centres were bombed? Who remembers? Who remembers what they were doing when Lady Diana died? You never forget those days, do you? There are days where you remember. And who remembers what they were doing when there was a moon landing in 1965? This will show your age. A few hands go up. A few hands don't want to go up. (laughs) I was born that year in 65, so it was a momentous uh, year. And uh, in 1953, there was a momentous event. The world stopped, really, when they heard of this event. And it was when Sir Edmund Hillary uh, finally ascended the 8,848 peak of Mount Everest. Uh, Less known uh, but uh, equally astounding was that he went up with a Sherpa, uh, uh, Tenzing Norgay, and they became the first people known to have climbed that. It was a big moment. But since that, 65 years later, over 4,000 people have climbed that peak. And Less momentous in world terms, but it's an amazing thing, you know, within 65 years, uh, 4,000 have climbed it, but that's a pretty select group. Uh, There have been a lot more Olympians in that time, in that 64 years, go through the Olympics. Uh, So it's a very elite group, and uh, it costs a lot of money, up to $70,000 for the expedition, 10,000 of which goes to just the royalty to the peak. But one of the results of this commercial sort of change from just one to many and costs is that some of the traditional um, sort of uh, commitments and some of the traditional code of mountaineering have been lost. And in the rush to the top, uh, sometimes um, people abandon other climbers. And in 2006, a tragedy occurred, uh, a a US climber whose name was David Sharp had climbed the mountain and on the way down he he ran out of oxygen. 
he fell off the track and was crying for help. Uh, 40 climbers passed him on their way up. No one stopped to help and he died. I don't know if you remember when that happened, but it struck everyone. My goodness, in the pursuit of this great event, how could we have lost our humanity? And an elite group of climbers who are doing this in their pursuit of greatness have lost that spirit of greatness. And we ask some questions as a world. Um, but un- according to one, a great climber who's climbed all the uh, 8,000 metre plus peaks in the world, whose name is Ed uh, Weistress, he says that it's not unique. He says, passing people who are dying on slopes is not uncommon. There are those, unfortunately, who say, it's not my problem, I've spent my money, I'm going to the summit. And how sad it is that in the midst of greatness we lose, and in the the seeking greatness, we lose the spirit of what true greatness really is. And we see that in our passage today. And maybe uh, in the midst of that, I think God asks us questions, who we are. We ask questions like that as a humanity. How could that be? Who are we? And God asks that of our lives. He does it collectively as a church. He does it individually as humans. But if you've come seeking questions for God today, if you're looking for God, God is a God who will ask a question. And as you ask, answer that question, he's willing to embrace you. And we see a passage today. If you have a Bible, uh, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, verse 29. Uh, it's less common these days for people to bring Bibles. Um, because, you know, you always got it up on the screen, but not today. So you're just going to have to listen if you haven't brought it. So uh, this is a passage where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem in Matthew 20. He's about to be crowned the king, and then a few short days later, the crowd will turn on him and want to crucify him. And on his way, with all the accolades, it says this in Matthew chapter 20, verse 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him towards Jerusalem, of course. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd around them rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped. He called them. What do you want me to do for you, he said. He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. Now, this is an interesting passage because it talks about this nature of questioning. Uh, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's into the final week of his ministry. Uh, He's soon to be betrayed, arrested, crucified. The crowds will bay for his blood. But as of now, the crowds love him. They think he's the answer to all their problems. They have decided collectively that Jesus is the King of Israel, the Son of David. He will meet all their needs politically, socially, economically, spiritually, He's the hope of Israel, the Messiah, son of David, promised king. Everyone's speculating that he'll soon take his crown. He'll throw off the yoke of the Roman oppression. He'll restore Israel to its economic and spiritual, political fortunes. And collectively, they're all claiming for Jesus to be the new big thing. He's, And as they're walking to Jerusalem in this sort of, from Jericho, 
which is a town not far. You can walk there in a day. The crowd are following and they're gathering momentum. And of course, we know a little bit later, they lay palm trees and they're all shouting, Jerusalem comes out. And they're all excited because Jesus has the possibility of meeting their needs on their terms. And as they're walking there, you'd think they'd be excited for Jesus to meet the needs of others on their terms. I mean, hey, Jesus is our Messiah. Surely he can be others' Messiah. Let's gather in others. But no, amongst the crowd on the side are two blind men. Everyone knows them, I'm sure. They park themselves on the, on the way between Jerusalem and Jericho and they start to look for help. Um, they're sitting by the, ride so, the roadside. They'll probably be asking for help. They hear that Jesus is coming. And the Bible tells us that they heard Jesus was going by And they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And instead of the crowd being interested and excited, hey, here's another person who can be served by Jesus' needs, what happens? The crowd is irritated. Uh, They're irritated. They, they, They rebuke them. Be quiet. Um, And... This isn't what they think Jesus is all about. He's on his way to Jerusalem to things that are more important. He hasn't got time to gather you in for this. You know, this, this is the thing. And Jesus stops and he asks these, he calls to them. It's sort of a break. And he asks them, what do you want me to do for you? Now, this is really quite unusual. As I studied my Bible, I, was, I had a chat to Chris, Pastor Chris this morning I thought this was the only time Jesus ever asked anyone a question. And I went back and forward on my, my Gospels. But Chris remembered that Jesus asked blind Bartimaeus. And there is some context about some people thinking, maybe this is the same narrative. One of them was Bartimaeus, this sort of that. But regardless, very, very few times does Jesus ever ask anyone a question, particularly the question, what do you want me to do for you? He asks the man beside the pool of Siloam, do you want to be well? And the man gives excuses and Jesus heals him. But he, he asks these men, what do you want me to do? Not just do you want to be well, but what do you want? And it's unusual because you'd think it would be obvious. It's not just unusual because it's maybe one of two times that he asks that. But you'd think it would be obvious that what these men need. They're blind. You'd think it would be obvious that that would be their answer. Even if Jesus couldn't have looked into their eyes and seen the cloudiness that's often there with blind people or watch people or watch them as they grope around, this is Jesus. You'd think Jesus would know. So when we see Jesus asking this question and that he knows all things, if he he needs, he knows all things. He can say to the woman at the well, you've had five husbands. I know that. How would he know that? I think Jesus knows and he knows you and me. But why does he ask this question of this man, these men? Well, I actually have come to believe that I think Jesus asked this question, not for his benefit, Jesus' benefit, but he asked the benefit for the men, the, the, not just the men, but also for the crowd around Jesus. Because remember, they're trying to move on, and this is a pause, this is a break. And I think Jesus asked this question for the benefit of the crowd. This crowd is obviously not into helping blind people. And so in their clamour to move on, blind people are a nuisance, they're a hindrance, they're a distraction to Jesus' real purpose. And of course that real purpose is their needs, their kingdom, 
the kingdom on their terms, Jesus stops and he uses this as a pause, a pause in that momentum in their lives. And he says, you're doing this, you're going there. And he, Jesus faced Jerusalem, he knew his mission, but he, he never forgot what was happening around him. And when it becomes obvious a few days later that this is what he wasn't about, of course the crowds turn their back on him and they crucify him. And so it's intriguing that Jesus didn't ask the crowds what he could do for them. He asked these blind men. And you know, as I observe this, I think there's a parallel in, in God's people, us as the church. I think we get a lesson as a church, as a group of people who are gathering around the person of Jesus in our journey with him to the great kingdom of heaven that Jesus tells us to pray, bring on earth as well as in heaven, as we move towards that journey and we think of all that Jesus is to us and all that he's done for us, it's easy to forget, is it not? That Jesus never forgets the human condition in amidst the organisational purpose or the community condition. He is interested in the person as we move forward as a community because it is easy as a community and there's a time as when Christians as a community can forget what Jesus saved us for. He saved us to be his children for a reason. And that was to journey with him in the business of rescuing humanity. To come to know God and to love him as we love him. And it's easy to sort of forget that. When we think about church being us, we think our relationship with Jesus is focused on our needs, our agenda as a, as a community. We can sort of become blind to the, to the needs of the individual and the needs of the person. It's so easy living in this present world to get distracted by the wrong things and miss Jesus' agenda right now as we pass through life. We can get distracted by the bright things of this world, like making it to Everest, our Everest, while forgetting others crying for help. It might be the accrual of wealth, security, popularity, fame, um, pleasure, whatever it is, might be being uh, a well person, having our needs met. It's not wrong to be well. It's not wrong to have wealth and be, use it as a generous gift to others. The Bible says that very clearly. You've been given wealth so you can give it away and, give, and bless others. And it's not a new problem because James in the early church, the writer James, Jesus' brother, uh, it didn't take 2,000 years for this problem to occur in the church. In the early church, the Bible tells us, James says in James chapter 2, verses 2 to 5, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit at my feet, are you not discriminating amongst yourselves and becoming judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? So it didn't take 2,000 years for this to happen. And I'm amazed, and I tell you, as a pastor from years' experience, I get irritated by things and to my own judgment, and it's not right and it's sinful. But I have a pretty low tolerance of... I like I'll publicly say this, you know, but if something doesn't quite happen the, the way it's meant to in church, if things distract me, I'm like, can you just fix that up so we can get on with the real agenda? Can you stop that child squawking in the corner while I worship God? I don't know if you're like that. Maybe it's just me. 
You know, communion crackers are a little bit crunchy, wine's not sweet enough, whatever. I don't know, I've, I just make up lists. It's easy. We start, we focus, it's about me. Whereas Jesus takes the we and he says, you need to turn that into a me for someone else. And you need to realise that the best question you can ask as a church is who is there amongst us who has need and who can we serve and love? We have our agenda. And I want to commend Bentley Baptist um, because Bentley is an embedded church in our community. And the thing that has struck me over all the years now, it's about 10 years I've been coming along to Bentley, is that we are an embedded church who do love people. Uh, I've been to many churches in this state, preaching, pastors, working, you know, consulting, helping, serving. And you get a sense of it. Bentley is a great church for being embedded. We, we are embedded. Isn't that true? We have people here in our church that we love from the community. We're a representative of that. With all our woundedness and brokenness, we are interested in the person for looking. We're interested in looking outward. We're interested in looking and being invited inviting people inward. And I was reading just recently about a church in Queensland in the Gold Coast who's just opened its doors again for the third year in a row to all the homeless people in its community. Uh, And it's a growing problem in the Sunshine Coast. People are going there because of the weather and it's warm and it's surfing and it's a nice lifestyle. And you're getting a group of homeless, wounded, broken people up there. Uh, And they just cannot, they're just overwhelmed by, you know, social services are overwhelmed. But the church said, let's do this. Let's get messy. And they opened their church on a Monday to Sunday to homeless people. And they come in and they help them. They're inundated. Now, regardless of the rights and wrongs, truth and error, good and evil, of why people are homeless, they've just said, we need to re-enter our universe with people in mind and get our hands dirty. And it didn't take them long. They're dirty. Because when you're dealing with people, you're dealing with people. And there's all sorts of unwellness and dysfunction in our lives and the lives of our communities. But it's brought great life to them, even amidst the mess. Because they're focusing on the needs around them as they're moving forward in the kingdom. It keeps you honest. And that's what we see Jesus. And I think that question is for the crowd. And... uh, it's easy for us to get distracted. So it's a great challenge for us, Jesus' question. It stops us. He stops us as a church and says to the people around us, what would you have me do? I think that encourages us. The second thing I think we learn from this is not only does Jesus um, get the crowd to focus on the real need, and I should have mentioned, I didn't really, uh, I just realised here from my notes I mentioned, forgot something. It's easy to get involved in a thing called, psychologists call it groupthink. And groupthink is when the needs of a group become bigger than the mission that the group is created for. And so this happens in armies sometimes. You get war atrocities when the need of the regiment or the corps become more important than the reason they're fighting and they do unspeakable acts. Groupthink is the thing that gets a crowd like back in Jerusalem to go, look, we, don't, we, we haven't got time for you people. Jesus is going to be king. And they forget the reason, and we can do it. And Jesus uses that to focus their minds out of groupthink into the lives of the individual. The individual is very important in the church, and we should always be asking, what can we do for the individuals of our church? And by the individuals, it's an other-centered question. Not what can the church do for me, 
you know. But what can this church and me do for others here? It focuses our need. That's the first thing. The second thing is that I think Jesus asked this question because it was a question these blind men needed to hear. These men without their sight. It was a question that moved from the general to the specific in their lives. And they're crying out to Jesus, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And they are crying out to Jesus as the Son of David, to the, as the Lord. They have faith that he is that in their understanding, whatever that was. They're not just crying out to him as somebody. They give him a name and a title. They knew him by name and title. Now, why would Jesus do this? Well, I've got a few friends who are counsellors. We've got a counsellor as a pastor in this church. And the counsellors that I talk to, because I've asked them a little bit about that because they're specialists and I haven't done formal counselling training, but I've asked them, I'm very interested in that process. And one of the things that counsellors tell me is that when you're... One of the first and best questions that a counsellor can ask a person who comes for counselling is, why are you here? Why, why do you feel the need and want me to work with you and explore with you in this counselling session? Now, that seems like common sense, doesn't it? But it has to be asked, why would they ask it so specifically? Because people who come to a counsellor's office may not actually really know what they want done for them. They know they've got a problem. They know that the counsellor is supposed to be able to fix problems, but they mightn't actually know what they really want done. And so the counsellor, if they don't clarify the issue, may actually try fixing something that the person doesn't really want fixed or fixing something on terms that the person won't accept. And so that clarity is really important. And I don't know what these blind men expected Jesus of Jesus when they first cried out for mercy, but as... Uh, blind uh, men, I'm sure they hadn't received much success in becoming unblind. And so they would usually just ask for help, arms, you know, like uh, money, uh, some sort of sustenance, food, and that sort of thing. And so people passed by. It was a bit of a hit and miss thing, I'm sure, as to whether mercy was given and found. Maybe got money, maybe bread, maybe something. And a lifetime of begging ingrains something into you, and that is to think in general terms. Until you get to the point where, well, I'll just cry out, have mercy. I'll let you decide. But Jesus doesn't do that. Um, They're not sure anyone will pay attention. They hear about Jesus, and they cry out to Jesus very particularly. And Jesus stops and asks them, what do you want me to do for you? And I don't think they would have expected him to do that. They might have expected something else, whatever. But by doing that, Jesus focuses on the general to the need, to the specific in their lives. And for the first time, perhaps, they get a glimpse that they can ask Jesus for whatever they want. And he might just grant it. And so in a boldness, born out of their own desperation, they cry out, Lord We want our sight. And Matthew tells us that Jesus had compassion on them, he touched them, and they received their sight and followed him. Can you imagine the electric moment that was? It's one thing to ask God for something. But can you imagine the moment Jesus reaches out and touches them? There's a few passages in Scripture that always make me emotional. One of them is when Jesus touched the man with leprosy. And he touched him before he healed him. And you've heard me speak about this for years. I can't stop. It's so great. It's like a record. I just push the button. It comes out. The other, he, he touched him before he healed him. 
and all that shame, public shame and fear about leprosy and getting that disease, uncurable then, hard to cure now. Jesus reaches out and touches the man with leprosy and then he's healed. The woman with a hemorrhage reaches out, touches Jesus and she's healed. And the only time in the whole Bible he calls her daughter. doesn't say daughter to anyone else because he loves her. He loves this man. And the Bible says he has compassion with these men. He reaches out, he touches them. And back then there was a bit of a view that, well, you sort of got what was coming to you in, in the Christian life or the life of, as a Jew, a uh, person of Israel. If you're a sinner, bad things happen. If you're good, good things happen. And Jesus spoke specifically against that a number of times in his ministry. He says, it's got nothing to do with that. It's there so that the works of God will be made clear. And this is one of them. That the work of God is Jesus having compassion and embracing and healing in this person. Can you imagine the moment that happened? What a moment in their lives. I'll never forget the time when I became a Christian, when I was 12, 11 years old. On November the 11th, 1977. I was just the most bored kid at that Billy Graham crusade, cold night in Canberra. Billy was sharing the message. I was thinking about, I don't know, how you re-roll toilet paper back onto a toilet roll. I don't know. How do you get toothpaste back into a tooth? Oh, you know, kids do this. I'm like that. I'm always thinking things. And then Billy Graham said, anyone who wants to accept Jesus can come forward. And it was just like, if I could just turn the lights off in this building and it's just like I went from darkness to light click and I just went I need that I stood up and went down the front and prayed the prayer with the counselor and I still remember the feeling of the moment I prayed and asked that Jesus would come into my life as my Lord and Savior 11 years old it was just like something was shed here I felt it I still remember that feeling can you imagine the electric moment of these men's lives as the electricity, the power of God flowed into their life and healed them. You see the shows, don't you? Go onto YouTube. Person sees for the first time. People who are born with a congenital issue, whatever, they, some operations now available, they can see for the first time. My mum read me a book once of a, a woman who saw for the first time. It's just incredible. And... As I was thinking about this, the John Wesley song, um, And Can It Be? Remember the old hymn, And Can It Be, that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Very famous song. They wrote it for unschooled and un, uh, the minors in Wales who couldn't read or write. And the third verse that we sing says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye, God's eye, diffused a quickening ray. The dungeon uh, flamed with light. I, uh, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Just the electric moment of that was never left Charles Wesley, who wrote that hymn. And my point is this. There are many times as Christians that we need to ask, sorry, we need to ask God for what we want And when he asks us what we want, we need to be very specific, knowing that God will answer and God loves us. 
And James struggled with this too in the early church when he says, you want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you don't get what you want. You quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. And even when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you can spend it on yourselves. He's saying as Christians, we are often distracted. We've got human problems. We want human solutions, but only God can give a God solution to a a human problem sometimes. Whatever God wants, he gives, and he gives it to people that he loves. And the, the solution that we need is, comes from God. And as Christians, we find ourselves in all sorts of frustrating situations where we can't solve, and we go to human solutions, as James is talking about, getting angry, getting upset, blaming others. We're seeking to solve our problems by force, manipulation, when we need to go to God. And God asks us and pauses us when we worship, when we come to him, when we're thinking about our issues in life in general terms. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? How easy it is for us to forget that. Jesus asks that question across eternity. He asks it in your life and he asks it in my life. As we look at the confusion and the distraction of our worlds and the issues, God looks at us with love and compassion and he asks us that same question. And one of the most reassuring Bible verses in the whole Bible is from Romans chapter 8, verse 32. And it says this, He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for all things, will he not also, how will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? It, we, we can never ever worry or never be in two minds about the goodness and love and compassion of God. Because whenever we think about the brokenness of our world and the struggles we have in life, God says, you need to look at what I did for you. That forever answers the question, how much I love you. I'm, I'm a good God who loves you. Whenever you're in doubt, humanly speaking, about my goodness and why don't things happen the way I want them to happen in our world and why things are struggling in my life, Know that I love you, and this answers forever that I love you. I gave an infinite price for an eternal God to bring you into my presence and into my love. And when Jesus asks these men, what would you have me do for you? He's asking us the same. What's your issues? Ask me. If I gave my son for you, you can be sure I love you enough to listen And to answer in a way that brings the best out for you and me. And it gives us a glimpse of God's priorities. He gives us a son to provide the answer. God doesn't just give us power. He gives us a person. He doesn't just bring his power and his love into our life. That's encapsulated in the person of God. In a human being who felt what we felt. Tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus has gone through our struggles. He knows what it's like. So when we come to him, we can come boldly knowing that he not only loves us, but he's felt what we've felt. And then he, through that question, orientates our life very specifically to God. And I think it's helpful for us because often individually, we want others to solve our problem. And I've been around church long enough to know that people, I'm one of them, often I project my problems onto other people. I'm unhappy, I've got problems, so I turn around and say, you're the reason I'm unhappy. If you just do the following then all will be well in my world. The trouble with that is no matter how well-behaved and good other humans being, uh, they can never satisfy the deepest needs of my life. And Jesus says, stop looking at them and look at me. What can I do for you? 
It's a very pointed question. And we can struggle, but there's a great promise. A Christian author, John Maxwell, said this, when it comes to change, there are three seasons of timing. People can change when they're hurt enough that they have to change, when they learn enough that they want to change, and when they receive enough that they're able to change. And sometimes in our lives, we don't want to answer a question because we're not in a place where we're prepared to answer it. We, we haven't come to that place where we've abandoned all our hope on humanity. We think, I can solve my problems. And God deals with us very compassionately like he does with these men. And he asks us very personally. He does that through his Holy Spirit in your heart and my heart. And he does that in his word. And I would encourage you to sit quietly and read God's word, especially the Gospels, the New Testament, the Old Testament, with the question of how is God revealing his love to you and I? And let the Spirit of God, as we read, quietly, you don't have to rush it, let God speak to us through his Holy Spirit, who counsels and guides us with that same question, what can I do for you? How can I make you whole and heal? That's a wonderful promise for us. And uh, God calls us to that this morning. I invite us to pray together as we prepare for a time of communion. Our Father God, we bow before you as your people. And we pause in our busy world as a congregation to hear that, that question again. What do you want me to do for you? Father, we're so thankful that you love us enough to ask that question. You take us, our, our mind off the crowd you take our mind to you. And we ask that as we pause, we will ask and answer the same question. We'll answer that question with honesty as these men did in their brokenness. And in our woundedness, we'll answer the same, knowing that we give the answer to you on your terms because you love us. Um, we're thankful that you did that and proved that through your son Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection as we remember now, together, as we gather in communion. Amen.